Part 1, Chapter 19 of The Patrician by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 1, Chapter 19. That afternoon, the wind, which had been rising steadily, brought a flurry of clouds up from the southwest. Formed out on the heart of the Atlantic, they sailed forward swift and fleecy at first, like the skirmishing white shallops of a great fleet, then in serried masses darkened the sun. About four o'clock they broke in rain, which the wind drove horizontally with a cold, whiffling murmur. As youth and glamour die in a face before the cold rains of life, so glory died on the moor. The tors, from being uplifted wild castles, became mere grey excrescences. Distance failed. The cuckoos were silent. There was none of that beauty that there is in death, no tragic greatness. All was moaning and monotony. But about seven, the sun tore its way back through the swathe and flared out. Like some huge star whose rays were stretching down to the horizon and up to the very top of the hill of air, it shone with an amazing murky glamour. The clouds, splintered by its shafts and tinged saffron, piled themselves up as if in wonder. Under the sultry warmth of this new great star, the heather began to steam a little, and the glitter of its wet, unopened bells was like that of innumerable tiny smoking fires. The two brothers were drenched as they cantered silently home. Good friends always, they had never much to say to one another. For Milton was conscious that he thought on a different plane from Bertie, and Bertie grudged even to his brother any inkling of what was passing in his spirit just as he grudged parting with diplomatic knowledge or stable secrets or indeed anything that might leave him less in command of life. He grudged it because, in a private sort of way, it lowered his estimation of his own stoical self-sufficiency. It hurt something proud in the withdrawing room of his soul. But though he talked little, he had the power of contemplation, often found in men of decided character with a tendency to live up. Once in Nepal, where he had gone to shoot, he passed a month quite happily with only a Gurkha servant who could speak no English. To those who asked him if he had not been horribly bored, he had always answered, Not a bit. Did a lot of thinking. With Milton's trouble, he had the professional sympathy of a brother and the natural intolerance of a confirmed bachelor. Women were to him very kittle-cattle. He distrusted from the bottom of his soul those who had such manifest power to draw things from you. He was one of those men in whom some day a woman might awaken a really fine affection, but who, until that time, would maintain the perfectly male attitude to the entire sex, and after it, to all the sex but one. Women were, like life itself, creatures to be watched, carefully used, and kept duly subservient. The only allusion, therefore, that he made to Milton's trouble was very sudden. Oh, man, I hope you're going to cut your losses. The words were followed by undisturbed silence. But passing Mrs. Knowles' cottage, Milton said, Take my horse on, I want to go in here. She was sitting at her piano with her hands idle, looking at a line of music. She had been sitting thus for many minutes, but had not yet taken in the notes. 
When Milton's shadow blotted the light by which she was seeing so little, she gave a slight start and got up. But she neither went towards him nor spoke. And he, without a word, came in and stood by the hearth, looking down at the empty grate. A tortoiseshell cap, which had been watching swallows, disturbed by his entrance, withdrew from the window beneath a chair. His silence, in which the question of their future lives was to be decided, seemed to both interminable, yet neither could end it. At last, touching his sleeve, she said, You're wet. Milton shivered at that timid sign of possession, and they again stood in silence, broken only by the sound of the cat licking its paws. But her faculty for dumbness was stronger than his, and he had to speak first. Forgive me for coming. Something must be settled. This rumour... Oh, that, she said. Is there anything I can do to stop the harm to you? It was the turn of Milton's lip to curl. God, no. Let them talk. Their eyes had come together now, and once together seemed unable to part. Mrs. Nell said at last, Will you ever forgive me? What for? It was my fault. No, I should have known you better. The depth of meaning in those words, the tremendous and subtle admission they contained of all that she had been ready to do, the despairing knowledge in them that he was not, and never had been ready to bear it out even to the edge of doom, made Milton wits away. It is not from fear. Believe that, anyway. I do. There followed another long, long silence. But though so close they were almost touching, they no longer looked at one another. Then Milton said, There is only to say good-bye, then. But those clear words, spoken by lips which, though just smiling, failed so utterly to hide his misery, Mrs. Knoll's face became colourless as her white gown. But her eyes, which had grown immense, seemed from the sheer lack of all other colour to have drawn into them the whole of her vitality, to be pouring forth a proud and mournful reproach. Shivering and crushing himself together with his arms, Milton walked towards the window. There was not the faintest sound from her, and he looked back. She was following him with her eyes. He threw his hand up over his face and went quickly out. Mrs. Knowles stood for a little while where he had left her, then, sitting down once more at the piano, began again to con over the line of music, and the cat stole back to the window to watch the swallows. The sunlight was dying slowly on the top branches of the lime tree. A drizzling rain began to fall. End of part one, chapter 19